This episode of 80 Days is brought to you by HarryBaby.com, the company that makes the funniest Irish-themed t-shirts. Harry Baby shipped to 71 countries last year, and to celebrate its 10th anniversary in 2017, Harry Baby aims to deliver to all 196 countries in the world by St. Patrick's Day 2018. You can help by ordering now from HarryBaby.com and use the promo code 80DAYS. That's 80DAYS to get 10% off. Hey everybody, just a very quick note up the top of the show today. This week's episode is a little bit different to the ones that you will have heard before. Uh, First of all, we have a special guest joining us for the first time. And this is also the very first episode that we split into two parts. Mostly because there was just so much content in this episode. And we also wanted to give the story a bit more room to breathe and make it a bit more digestible for you guys. If you have any feedback, uh, questions, comments, or concerns, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us directly at 80daypodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. If you haven't already done so, we'd also appreciate if you could leave us a review in iTunes as that's the best way for us to boost our visibility and for more people to hear about the show. Thank you very much for listening and enjoy the episode. I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds that I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Accept. Accept. I accept. Train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to 80 Days, an exploration podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by four history and geography nerds in an internet power balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements, and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly. I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong, and joining me are... Mark Boyle in Surrey in the UK. Joe Byrne in Bern, Switzerland. And Aaron Barkley in Richmond, Virginia in the United States. And today we'll be talking about Cuba, an island in the Caribbean Ocean just 90 miles south of the US state of Florida. Cuba is home to over 11 million inhabitants and is the second largest island in the Caribbean after Hispaniola. The country has been subject to numerous territorial disputes and conflicts throughout its long and complex history, but finally emerged into independence in 1902. Following a turbulent revolution which spanned almost the entire 1950s, the Communist Party of Cuba, under the leadership of Fidel Castro, took control of the country in 1965. Although poverty is widespread, modern Cuba has an outstanding healthcare and education system, and relations with the US are currently beginning to thaw after a protracted embargo that has been in place since the 1960s. Now, right before we begin, I uh, just want to take a second to welcome Aaron to the podcast. Welcome, welcome Aaron. Aaron. Good to have you Thank on board. Thank you. I just waved. I don't know why. As our resident American, do you want to give us a very brief introduction to Cuba? So Cuba is a small island nation just south of Florida, and their history with America is a little bit, it's been a little bit tenuous. We have bailed them out on several occasions, and they're sort of viewed as this weird cousin country that occasionally we'll send refugees to us and I, I can't speak to older generations but my generation sort of sees them as this forbidden place that's so terrible that everyone's always trying to hop across the Atlantic to get here um, you hear about these refugees that have risked life and limb to get to a better life in America and they usually don't which is a shame all right well we're gonna take a, a step very very big step back and start at the at the very beginning I guess how did we get here how do we get here exactly? So yeah, Cuba's earliest known human intab- inhabitants apparently arrived on the island around 4000 BC. There's not a whole lot of information out there based on my research about the very early days of Cuba, but uh, they did find these things called microblades in an archaeological site called La Visa, dating from around 3100 BC. 
And these were apparently, as well as kind of hunting implements and this kind of thing, they were also ritualistic. As we've talked about before, there's a lot of, how would you say? Slicey, cutty, <laughs> gruesome uh, stuff. Yeah. Gruesome stuff happening in uh, in Central and South America, I guess. At this, at Cut this off his wiener. Period. The sun god <laughs> demands it. Cut it off. Cut that wiener off. With most pre-Columbian cultures in the Americas, we don't really know all that much. Uh, well, yeah, the, the Taino people uh, migrated then from Haiti and the Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico. And I get the impression based on the research that I've done is they're much more developed than the native people in Cuba at the time. So this could be considered the, the first colonization in a way. I guess so. They kind of overwhelmed the native people who I'm... <laughs> whose name I'm going to attempt here in very, very poor Spanish is uh, Guantabe, Guantabe, I think, people who were just sort of hunter-gatherer people and were kind of pushed out them by these, these Taino people who fought them and then pushed them towards the the western edge of the island, just mm. kind of like confined them to one small area of the island. And by the 15th century, I think, the Taino population reached about 350,000. These are much better organized people for the time. Uh, they had colonized a bunch of different areas in, in the region. Uh, they subsisted on agriculture and farming. And these were the first people to grow tobacco in Cuba, which hmm. we know it's very famous for even today. And the, the 15th century, you say? So that, that this is uh, everything's going to go much better for them from now on. Or big population... Big industry, 15th century, everything, everything's going to go fine, right? Everything's going to be fine, Joe. Wait, what's that in the horizon? White guys! I, oh no. no nothing, <laughs> nothing momentous happened in the 15th century. Aaron, remind us of that. Uh, what's, what's that? What's that rhyme every American school kid learns about 1492? Once in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Is that the one you want? And then yep. killed a lot of yes, people. It doesn't have quite the same ring to it. No, no, it doesn't. He arrives in Cuba in uh, 1492. And one of the first places he visits is Cuba, right? Yeah, he lands first in the Bahamas. Yeah, the first land Columbus found was the Bahamas. Um, and I think he met native people there and was reasonably nice to them initially. I think, he I did, think in his yeah. first voyage he had a, a different attitude to the indigenous people where he wanted to be polite. It was very much about exploration mm. is uh, is the impression that I've gotten. Yeah, it's, it's, it was just about sort of, wow, look at this. Like, this is these these people are crazy and, you know, it look different to us. And look at and, all the gold they're wearing. Uh, Where did you get that? Yeah, and I'm going to bring a couple of them back to show to, you know, the Spanish mm. uh, king. Then on the, on the second voyage, I think, in 1493, so he goes back to Spain, shows off what he's found in South America, Central America, and well, the, the Caribbean at this the... point exclusively, like yeah, he explored the Bahamas. He looked at, a bit at Cuba, and then Hispaniola is the island that's now the Dominican Republic and Haiti, and that that was hmm. the main yeah place he explored. And so the the King of Spain sends him back with a much much bigger fleet in 1493, and Columbus lands at Guantanamo Bay or what will, what will later become Guantanamo Bay. Yeah. And I have a quote from him here. He says he described the Taino settlements as looking like tents in a camp, and they were all of palm branches and beautifully constructed. He has some interesting descriptions like of, of how when he arrived in Taino settlements, all the people just left. That was their response for, uh, consistently mm. to, to the explorers arriving yeah. at the beaches. As everyone just goes, right, we're off into the forest. Wasn't it a thing that uh, the Europeans, as they 
they they came into the Americas and in contact with the the, the natives uh, in the Americas that the natives were like you guys smell awful and you you guys are so unhealthy and disgusting uh we want to keep away from you because you're obviously gross uh because they were you <laughs> oh. know uh on boats for weeks on end they're coming from like urbanized uh, uh settlements in in europe with high population density and were rife with mm. disease and they met the natives who were you know living an outdoor kind of eco lifestyle and looked great <laughs> they looked like super great skin and athletic and super sexy and all of these like troll like Europeans hobbled off the boat with their scurvy and rickets and we're like here any any of you want to shag and they're like we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna go as far away from you as possible so uh, all the best so that that sounds like it would be understandable mm. yeah anyway during this era the Spanish start settling Hispaniola as their primary. Uh, base of operations in the Caribbean. That's the that's the first settlement, yeah. yeah uh, which so is this is a just east of of Cuba. Yeah, east and um, south. It's a big it's a big island. Yeah, the conquest of Cuba then begins in 1511, I think, mm-hmm. uh, where they the Spanish establish a governor on the island, and they essentially just start slaughtering indige- indigenous people. Um, so yeah, Diego Velasquez sets up a capital at Santiago de Cuba, I think, mm. which is the original capital. And they were mm. practicing this idea, um, I forget the Spanish word, but this, this idea of um, murder, people being given <laughs> a Murdering group people. of indigenous people <laughs> as property, kind of like serfdom in Europe. Oh, Jesus. Uh, so you would be granted this particular land and all the people who lived in it to work for you as, as essentially uh, slaves. But the indigenous people were, we're not, not so keen, keen on that, that. idea. Oh, yeah. Weirdly. Oh, uh, Happy Columbus so, Day. <laughs> This this guy, uh, the indigenous people are kind of rallied together against uh, the Spanish at a certain point, and this uh, under this guy called Houti, I think, is how you pronounce his name. Hatui. Uh, Hatui, maybe. Uh, and he had spl- uh, fled from Hispaniola after the Spanish uh, conquest there, and he basically gathers a bunch of local people on Cuba, and it's like, we're gonna uh, fight against these guys. We're gonna resist as much as we can essentially fight you know a, a guerrilla campaign against uh the, the spanish uh invaders and uh although we would think of the europeans i guess now as being um less barbaric i suppose of the, of the two forces i don't know after after a whole season uh, and a half of, of this show how you still think that <laughs> that's that's yeah. that's true but i guess i guess the, each, the perception each time in... we research a country I become less and less a fan of Europe. <laughs> That's true, uh, but what I'm saying is that the when they eventually captured this guy and his and his followers, they did not shoot him. No, they burned him at the stake. Yeah. Oh my which, god! Yes, they burned the guy alive. I, I guess. This was a, probably around the time of the Spanish Inquisition, though, so I guess so this that's not kind of in fashion. too yeah. unexpected for them. But yeah, it's pretty gruesome and uh, quite memorable, and it's it's stuck in history for that reason. Um, and I think even to this day, indigenous people, few and all as there are, would see him as a, a kind of a hero, a folk hero, or a yeah. There's a few people at this time that that flee to uh, the what what is the modern day U.S. I suppose to Florida, a place called Calusa, where they basically told the people that were living there at the time, uh, hey, these Spanish are really terrible, and they burned our leader at the stake, and you should. 
you know, la- let them land here. And uh, huh. we won't get into it right now, but the, uh, apparently the Spanish, when they tried to move in that direction in later years, encountered a lot of resistance uh, because they were aware of the the nature of the colonizing forces, I suppose, based on the right. people that had fled Cuba. And this is these, these are the first people to have, uh, I guess, made... Maybe not the very first people, but the first people to kind of become refugees from Cuba to the U.S. or what will become the U.S. Okay, so so it's this is kind of when slavery starts, isn't it? So the, we we discussed how the the kind of serfdom system wasn't really working for the Spanish because the natives didn't like being enslaved for some reason, and they smallpox, and, and a lot of them died from European diseases. And, yeah, so yeah. We're getting so, similar kind of themes here to maybe when we looked at Panama. So, brought in African slaves. Yeah, the natives are not working for us, so let's let's bring these, uh, you know, hard-working slaves from Africa and uh, import them over to, to Cuba and just, you know, have them work for us. That does in not go so well either. In 1526, they must have been some um, of the first African slaves in, in the Americas. Yeah. So this is and, the start of a long and terrible chapter in human history but there were some rebellions right Luke? yeah there was one in uh, 1532 which was a uh, slave rebellion and then a second one in 1537 which i found very interesting where the indigenous people actually banded together with the uh, african slaves uh, which the spanish oh. also eventually uh, put down but uh is kind of a interesting example of the indigenous people joining forces with the slaves that had brought had been brought over so this this um Slave population continued to grow through the next two centuries as trade from Cuba became increasingly important. So initially, the Spanish really, really controlled all of the trade through monopolies. So they they had a a tobacco monopoly and a sugar monopoly, like the British East India Company kind of system, where a a royal company, a royal chartered company would control all the trade. So you would grow the sugar or the tobacco on the island you had to sell it to the Monopoly, and then they would take it to Europe and sell it at a profit. So it really restricted the economic growth to some extent because you couldn't, uh, as as a colony, you couldn't actually have any uh, influence over the cost of the, the things you were growing. All through the 1600s, 1700s, you have run-ins with, with French uh, marauders, with pirates and privateers, Dutch freebooters, and with British pirates as well. So this is this whole period um, of of the glamorous piracy of movies, you know, the kind of uh, parrot on the shoulder, peg leg sort of swashbuckling pirate era. Yeah. And it was just, you know, it was a free-for-all in the Caribbean. Um, in 1607, Havana was named the capital of Cuba. So it moved from Santiago to Cuba quite quickly uh, because at this point, 13,000 of the 20,000 people living on the island lived in Havana. So it was the obvious place to be a capital. Havana's over towards the west, much closer to Florida. By 1650, there's about 5,000 African slaves compared to only 2,000 natives. So the natives have gone from 350,000 people only a century earlier to 2,000 between fleeing and being killed, being worked to death. The English were kicking around the region at the time And they captured Havana for a while and only withdrew after Jamaica was recognised by Spain as a British colony. So that was their bargaining chip. Then in the 1700s, 
the tobacco monopoly came up against three armed uprisings by tobacco growers, uh, all in the space of about a, a decade and a half. And this was emblematic of the tensions in, in the colonies between the people who were making their lives there and the people in the mother country who still just saw it as an economic unit to be exploited. And there's always this tension about who should be making all the money. Uh, in the end of these uprisings, there was a compromise drawn where the tobacco growers were allowed to sell two thirds of their tobacco to whoever they felt like and only one third to the monopoly. So we're starting to get a liberalisation of trade. Uh, unfortunately, the slave trade is also being liberalised. And in the aftermath of the War of Spanish Succession, uh, the Treaty of Utrecht gave the English the right to provide unlimited slaves to the Spanish colonies. So this opened the floodgates of, uh, of slave labour in, in Cuba. Uh, not just in Cuba, but, but for our purposes, that's obviously the most relevant. So England was selling slaves. Yeah, England to controlled the Spanish the, colonies at that time. Yeah, England controlled the transatlantic slave trade. England didn't actually practice slavery itself, right? I don't think there it was slavery in England, time. but in Jamaica and in the Bahamas yeah. and in the Americas, or in like mm. in, in North. As far America, as I know, slaves yeah, were the colonies. Slaves were traded through Liverpool, as far as I know. Um, this is just really? from, from living. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the, yeah. The, Liverpool was a, a large part of the the transatlantic slave trade. I don't think, as you say, I don't think they were actually necessarily used in terms of labor in the uk but for sure in the colonies and the trade absolutely they were a huge part of that so that was a it was an english controlled industry the spanish didn't really have a slave trade um and i think there was some discomfort about the whole idea but after they lost the war of spanish succession the english got free reign i had have to include this because i i, I love the name there was a there was a war called the war of jenkins ear in 1741 <laughs> very nice and we haven't had we've had a lot of great names, but not a lot of great war names. Like that's that's a yeah great name yeah yeah war. yeah. You know, it's a great uh, war name. One of the one of the most interesting ones we've had so far. It was just a general war between everyone in the Caribbean, but the, it got the name because Captain Jenkins had his ear cut off, and it was brought back to England and displayed to Parliament as justification for why these barbarian Spanish should be put in their place or whatever. Um, which is quite a gruesome parliamentary display. Um, anyway, so the British took Guantanamo Bay briefly during that war. Um, and again, in 1762, in the Seven Year War, they took Havana. They kept it for two years. And during those two years, they introduced 4,000 African slave labourers, which is nearly 10% of all the slaves imported to the island in the previous 250 years. So they were just rapidly changing the plantation system. There was a sugar boom, which was creating inflation. Pretty much anyone who wasn't involved in the sugar trade became poor. And everyone who was became part of this uh, this new elite that controlled the island. So in this milieu of sort of slavery and oppression and injustice and population imbalance between slaves and, and free, like out of the 172,000 people in Cuba, 44,000 of them were slaves. And in Haiti... Not very far away. So the French colony of Saint-Domingue, which became Haiti, there was a slave revolt inspired by the French Revolution and the equality and liberty mm. ideas. They started... Which I'm assuming made a lot of people very nervous. It did. In Cuba. And yeah. it changed the entire yeah. region. We have 30,000 white refugees fleeing Saint-Domingue and coming to Cuba. 
So these are mm. slaveholding people who want to continue that lifestyle moving to Cuba. Um, and there were free black people and free mulatto people also fled, fled to Cuba from Haiti. And they were put back into chains because the Cubans didn't understand the idea of a free black person. Wow. Oh, so, God. Welcome to Cuba. Here's your chains. Uh, yeah. And if, if you want to know more about the Haitian Revolution, Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast is an exceptionally detailed account of it. But uh, it's we, yeah, it's a great podcast. We, 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 we won't Highly dwell on it, it here. Um, yeah. But you've got 91,000 new slaves entering the country in the 15 years at the end of the 18th century. And, it, you know, what could go wrong? <laughs> what could go wrong okay um you just hear the rustle of papers there uh the 1800s had here we go <laughs> I, I have details on uh six separate um revolutions and uh, another three uh, just six in the first half of the 1800s and then the three wars in the second half um so yeah uh, basically about nine nine revolutions in the 1800s um, so as well as, as as Joe was saying, the kind of the stage being set with uh, uh, migrants going away from Haiti towards Cuba, but also the kind of the examples set by Haiti in terms of the, the slave revolt. Um, another huge element of what was to come in the 1800s was the Napoleonic Wars in Europe, because they basically... Mm. <laughs> turned Spain into not really a going concern anymore for a while. Um, I, I have in my notes, Spain equals total... Ay, caramba! Uh, there's, uh, <laughs> because right after the Napoleonic Wars, you've got civil wars as well, and they're kind of trying to form uh, temporary governments and this and that, and they're really not able to manage uh, colonies all over the world and the far side of the Atlantic, etc. So... The, the Spanish authority is definitely weakened in Cuba in the first uh, first few decades of the 1800s. And obviously, you know, they've seen what's happened in Haiti. So people people are getting ideas. Um, the first of the revolutions, I'm not going to go into depth into all of them. I'm just going to give you a couple of, couple of tastes. Uh, first one, I have uh, Joaquin Infante in 1809. He, he declared independence and... It, you read so many of these things, there's a formula to it. They declare independence. Uh, there's usually, they're very studious about getting a constitution in place uh, with all the stuff that they're going to do. And, you know, they had nine revolutions and only one is... Well, they, they do that real well, but then it's all the fighting and the actual capturing of land that they don't do so well. Uh, okay. So he, he did it's all nice his homework ideas. and he had his, all his... All his, all his documents were filed correctly, uh, so he decided to have a revolution. Uh, he declared independence, new constitution, no one was really very keen, and eventually he just left, it seems, and he went off to join Simon Bolivar, uh, who seemed to have the right idea about this kind of stuff. Um, yeah, Bo- three Bolivar... years later... Okay, so we're entering that the Bolivar period. 
Yeah, I think so. And again, okay. that's another example for for the, the Caribbean islands to looking towards what, what Bolivar was doing. Um, yeah. In 1812, three years later, we have a, a slave rebellion by, uh, this is his nickname, was Black Jose Aponte. Good name. So in, on the 15th of January, 1812, five plantations uh, joined in his, in his rebellion. The aftermath was eight whites dead and uh, the revolution moved to the outskirts of the capital. Um, the end of this was that the, the Spanish killed 14, imprisoned 63 and sent them to Florida, which I think we can agree is a fate worse than death. <laughs> Um, Ouch. burn on you, Florida. Which at this um, point was and, was American, right? I, I I didn't mention it, but Florida Florida was traded for Cuba. It was more at, like at we we were talking about this. I think it's like eighteen yeah. thirties, eighteen forties that it actually became America. So not quite yet. I think it was still a part of yeah, Spain. Yeah, the the, 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 the the British the British and the Spanish swapped it at one point in the past. Okay, uh, they'd occupied Cuba and and they gave Florida to the english and it was all yeah that's how, that's how land works you just kind of go here you have this all of that give us back our slaves <laughs> great um but poor old uh jose aponte they cut off his head and stuck it in a little cage uh to show off to people who revolted so <laughs> even though the spanish government not exactly you know on top of stuff they still are able to make up for their lack of administrative capability with a bit of stunning cruelty uh, i read this they hung it outside his house but i also read this quotation with uh, they hung it in the most public and convenient location to offer a warning lesson to his followers which is very... Uh, uh-huh. Are you feeling revolutionary? Yeah. Just look at the head. <laughs> exactly. Look at it. Look at the head. Okay. I'm, I'm going to blitz through the next couple of ones only because they have such great names. So in 1823, there was the Sons and Rays of Bolivar. The Sons and what? Sons and Rays of Bolivar. Oh, that's lovely. Rays of sunlight. Exactly. Exactly. The influence of Bolivar, but also that's the That's very poetic. Um... Uh, well, they failed. They were probably all killed, so... Oh. Don't, don't, just to, uh, just to crap it. sounded again. nice while yeah, they were but, doing it. Uh, great name, lads. And I'm sure the Constitution yeah. was all filed correctly, but, you know, <laughs> they're all shot. Um, so then there was the Expedition of the Thirteen in 1826. There was, my favourite, the Grand Legion of the Black Eagle. Ooh. Um, and then there was the Triangular Chain slash the Sons of Liberty in 1837. Um, so lots of rebellions. A, 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 another part of this was that after Spain was able to kind of get their get themselves together a little bit, they they were cracking down in Cuba pretty hard. So they they were really adding to the problem. And during this period, um, there was a lot of uh, I guess the idea of, of of liberty and so on really took hold in Cuba in part because of this this one person I found, uh, Felix uh, Varela, who was a priest. Uh, and the quotation I have on him was, he was the one who taught us how to think. Um, he taught in the seminary oh. in Cuba, and he taught a lot of the people who would go on to be important in the in the subsequent uh, wars of independence. Uh, just an interesting postscript on him. Um, he was sentenced to death by the Spanish. He fled to Gibraltar, which we've also covered, uh, and then on to New York City, uh, where he became fluent in the Irish language and helped uh, Irish immigrants to settle. Uh, as they're coming in from the famine. So in the fa- that 1840s. That seems like the logical right. progression. Yeah, anyway. Just... Well, that, that was the first language of certain parts of Brooklyn yeah. at the time. So I, it's, it's something I love about this era is people did seem to get around a lot. You know, there were certain people who ended up yeah. just 
covering the whole world and another people who never left their village and it's it's an interesting contrast just just um while while we're on irish connections mark in 1844 yeah. uh, the captain general of cuba was a guy called uh, leopoldo o'donnell who was the first duke of tetuan and he he wasn't irish but that surname is is suspicious uh, he would be a descendant <laughs> it, it of betrays, yeah. of um, one of the betrays some heritage the earls who who fled Ireland in in 1607, um, and he was a brutal administrator uh, who presided over what became known as the Year of the Lash, where he basically imprisoned oh, and, and tortured thousands of slaves and free coloured people um, before moving on to a successful career as a minister in Spain. That's the worst kind of lash. Uh, for for non-Irish people, being on the lash means going out and getting good and drunk. Uh, oh, although any oh, other nice. phrase in, Ir- in Ireland basically means that too. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. 2005 to 2009 for me was, was the years of the lash in that regard. <laughs> um, Those were good years. 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 Um, we'll, we'll mention another uh, Irish-American who becomes relevant uh, later on in, in one of these wars coming up. So in the second half of the 1800s, you have the three wars of independence. There's the Ten Years' War, uh, the Little War, and the War of Independence, as it's, as it's commonly known. Uh, the first one, the Ten Years' War, um, the first guy who was the kind of the, the, the focal point of this was Carlos Manuel de Céspedes. Uh, I believe he was um, a, a sugar plantation owner. Um, and was one of these guys that uh, you, you kind of mentioned earlier how the, the people who were in Cuba and actually doing the work uh, were getting enormously resentful of how Spain was extracting uh, the resources and the economic wealth and, and not really giving anything back. Um, so the, the Spanish, as I said, were, were cracking down as well in terms of um, in terms of some of the promises that they had made to Cuba in terms of uh, uh, representation, etc. They had welched on pretty much all of that. Um, oh, and also they killed his son, uh, who I believe was uh, was not an adult son. Uh, when when he threatened revolution, they captured his child, and he said, "You can kill my child because all of the children of the revolution are now my children." And they did kill his child. So didn't I? Mean, I don't know if whether, whether he was hoping to get his kid back. <laughs> I, yeah, I feel like a little bit, and they they killed him anyway. Um, I'm not gonna go in. I mean, God. It, these are huge like it's the 10 years war it's 10 years war world war ii only lasted six years and that's that's a lot in world war ii so i'm not going to go into everything here um i will say that this war was kind of um it was a, a necessary step it was a preparatory uh, uh experience i guess for a lot of these commanders who would go on to fight in the in the war of independence uh one of these guys uh, maximo gomez he was from the dominican republic um he was actually a Spanish soldier. He had fought for Spain and he ended up settling in Cuba uh, as a captain and a, a cavalry officer. He invented some tactics that were important for uh, the Cuban revolutionaries and that they used against the Spanish. He invented the machete charge, which is basically where they would uh, um, run towards... It sounds this... terrifying. It is, it is, because they didn't have proper weapons. They only had, you know, agricultural You don't want to be on the, on the wrong end of a machete charge, <laughs> I feel like. It's, it's basically a Russian from the side... So it just panics the uh, the Spanish ranks. It was kind of a, a form of guerrilla warfare. They wouldn't be expecting it. They come in from the side, hack down as many people as possible uh, at a Spanish weak point, and you know then then the the battle will start properly with machetes, presumably with with plenty of machetes. Um, he was no, no, with, shot with, in uh, the with neck. Water pistols. 
Yeah. Um, water pistols filled with machetes. Um, he was shot in the oh, neck God. in 1875, uh, and he plugged that hole in his neck with cotton, and he lived with that hole in his neck for 30 years. Uh, as the war went along, hmm. you had a lot of um, a lot of commanders coming from uh, who were veterans of the U.S. Civil War uh, from both the the Union and Confederate sides. Okay. Uh, Maximo Gomez was originally the commander of the of the Cuban forces. He got replaced by uh, by a Confederate general who came over, who was then again replaced by Maximo Gomez. Uh, Cespedes, the original uh, leader of the revolution, he was also replaced himself. You can kind of see this problem where the leadership kept changing because uh, the the different stakeholder groups within uh, within the revolution, the revolutionary you know council or whatever they were using to administer this, they couldn't agree. So. They, they kept on with this, this war for a couple of years. Um, there was also uh, the Cavada brothers, uh, Adolfo and Federico, uh, one of whom Federico became known as General Fire because of him burning down all the Spanish, uh, all the Spanish bases. Good name. Um, basically, yeah, the, the war kind of petered along for a while until the Spanish were able to put down their own civil war that they had in Spain uh, and were able to then concentrate on putting down this rebellion. Um, eventually there was an agreement called the Pact of Than Juan, which I guess means St. John. Um, and there was what was called the, the 17 years of rewarding truce during which a slavery was finally abolished in Cuba in 1886. Uh, in this 17 years of rewarding truce, there was another <laughs> war, uh, with, uh, uh, some of the generals from the, um, from the 10 years war who basically weren't weren't done. Uh, one of them was, uh, he was uh, Afro-Caribbean. He was known as the Bronze Titan, is Maceo. And also uh, a veteran, uh, Calicho, as well. Uh, and then we got these 17 years of peace. Things kind of improved very, very slightly. But you've, all the same guys are still there, basically. They, they all fought the Ten Years' War. They failed, but they learned a hell of a lot. And they are sitting there waiting for the next chance which comes along in 1895 the cuban war of independence uh lasts three years until 1898 and was kind of you know basically a repeat of of the first you know machete charges uh the the cuban rebels are underfunded under equipped but are managing to kind of uh uh learn from the lessons of the Ten Years' War. They're trying to break into Western Cuba, which they were never able to su- successfully do in the Ten Years' War. And then something happens that changes it massively. Um, uh, the U.S. got very concerned about what was happening and decided to send a ship, a ship called the Maine, uh, towards, I believe, Havana to basically just kind of show their interest in what was happening. I mean, the, the Spanish were obviously... Uh, doing a terrible job of administering their colony, weren't able to put down this rebellion. There was, I think, riots by uh, Spanish loyalists in Florida about uh, about the Cuban rebellion. And they sent along this ship called the Maine, and the Maine got all blowed up. Uh, how it got all blowed up, no one, no one seems to really know. Some people think it was uh, the Spanish that might have done it. That was certainly the accusation. Some say maybe the Cuban revolutionaries did it to try to bring the Americans into the war. Um, what happened as a result was, uh, was uh, part of the newspaper wars between Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst. And they both uh, turned this into this massive jingoistic cause. And 
you have the Spanish-American War of 1898. Uh, the quote being, Remember the Maine to hell with Spain. That changes the character um, of things a little. Yeah, all right. I think, I think this is a pretty good point to insert a break. So, uh, yeah, we'll be back just after this. So after an extremely turbulent 19th century, uh, the U.S. then declares war on Spain, which is where we just left left off. Mark, uh, do you want to tell us how that was resolved? Yeah, basically, uh, the U.S. invades Cuba. Uh, they invade through the eastern part, which is controlled by the rebels through uh, Santiago. Uh, they're unable to absolutely push out the Spanish out of Cuba, but what's happening in the rest of the world is the U.S. is kicking the Spanish uh, Spanish collective arses in the Philippines, Guam, and I think maybe some other places as well. Um, so Spain is extraordinarily keen to sue for peace, which they they do. the The war was it, it looked from the numbers quite brutal. It was a hundred thousand to three hundred thousand Cubans uh, dead. Uh, oh, they were wow. yeah, they were just massive. Spanish uh, hold themselves up in huge fortifications, which was part of the reason that the U.S. found them hard to break down. As I mentioned, the, the U.S. newspapers were going bonkers over this whole thing. And in the middle of this, we had uh, a man of unique, robust masculinity. Uh, <laughs> Theodore, oh, Theodore Roosevelt. <laughs> the man um, with the plan. He got together. Um, a man with a plan, yeah. Uh, riding a moose. Um, he got together this group called the Rough Riders. And the term was, was commonly known because it was part of the longer name of uh, Buffalo Bill's like Wild West show. It was uh, Buffalo Bill's Wild West and I think Congress of Rough Riders, um, which was a large part of the kind of the, the mystification of the idea of uh, you know the frontiersmen and cowboys and all this kind of stuff. Um, so Teddy Roosevelt, I don't know, he had a free afternoon. So he got together about a thousand men, uh, all of whom were kind of, it was a mix of like, uh, outdoorsmen, cowboys, uh, police officers, former, um, uh, army veterans. And every account I say, I see says college. The kind of guys who'd currently be occupying a national park somewhere (laughs) with, with, with their, with their Yeah, like kind of upper, upper class toffs. And mad mountain men, basically. Uh, yeah, got a, yeah t- sure. Together about a thousand of these guys who were keen That's to shoot some people. Uh, and he got them uh, horses. And uh, basically they stuck him on a boat and ran over to, uh, ran over to Cuba. And uh, the Rough Riders were... Well, they were successful in a bunch of battles. They were, you know, genuinely like a, a military force to be to be reckoned with. It wasn't just all, all foolishness. Um, and... I think a large part of Teddy Roosevelt's his his image and what what made him be a a vice presidential candidate um, was this this instance this kind of building mm. him up as this super like robust fighty shooty whatever needs to be done I can do it guy and he would subsequently become the youngest U.S. president in history. Mm. Um, but anyway, yeah, Teddy Roosevelt is in the midst of all this uh, killing Spaniards. And the upshot was that by the end, 1898, uh, there was the Treaty of Paris, uh, the 10th of December, 1898, and Cuba is no longer Spanish. Um, The U.S. 
basically takes over Cuba for about a year until Cuba gains independence, I believe, towards the end of 1899. So right at the end of the, of the 19th century, Cuba is finally independent from Spain, albeit very heavily influenced by the US. And the flag they adopted, Mark, the uh, Republic of Cuba's flag, was actually based on a some random Venezuelan, American-based Venezuelan guy who tried to invade Cuba in the mid-1800s, had just designed a flag for fun. And th- this this became their standard. So the current Cuban flag oh. is from, uh, what was his name, Narciso Lopez. It's not a bad flag. It's a good flag. It's solid. Mm. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you can't argue with it. Yeah. All right. So this is our first uh, instance of, of kind of an independent Cuba. Aaron, do you want to walk us through uh, how that went? Yes. So post-revolution Cuba, everyone was still kind of frustrated. No one was really sure what they were trying to do. They had a constitution. They had filed all their documents properly, but there were still dissidents. So what you see a lot of in this time is people, presidents and leaders facing uh, challenges are going to turn to the big neighbor next door and say, hey, you there with the big stick, come help us out. So you see in 1906, President Palma asks for help uh, for President Taft, and he sends soldiers who remained in Cuba till 1909. So you're still seeing a ton of American occupation. You've also got during this time what they called the Banana Wars, uh, which was a series of skirmishes in the region that, as with many great skirmishes, was all about money. It was all about the economic interests that were tied up in things like bananas and in Cuba more specifically sugar. So you had these. That's a, that's another great name of a war. Yeah, uh, the Banana Wars. That's 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 two for this episode. So yes. Cuba is was, winning was on that this, front. Was this United Fruit? Was that was that that business with the the, the big fruit companies, basically running Nicaragua and and Guatemala and stuff? Yep, that was part of it. Okay, it's hard, it's hard to make fruit sound intimidating, but they they do it with United Fruit. <laughs> you don't mess with United Fruit. No, you do not. So what what you had like were these. Uh, <laughs> What you had were all these workers, primarily black, who weren't slaves anymore, but were still in this kind of pseudo-slavery with the economics and, and all of the mm. the poverty that they were facing. And they worked and lived and worked in the sugar plantations. So in 1912, you have the, the Cuban iteration of the Banana War was called, they called it the Negro War. And that was just, the conditions got so bad that they tried to mobilize. And there's a law in Cuba, you're not allowed to have race-based political parties. So they weren't allowed to organize politically, so they just fought against the government. And um, it was right. in May 1912 when the, the, the sugarcane workers went against the Cuban army. It's a man named Evaristo Estinos. He was the leader in all of this. Led his figures, followers against the Cuban army. And um, Cuba, as was their habit, as was custom at the time, turned to the United States and said, hey, send us some soldiers. So they had... Um, the U.S. sent 2,789 soldiers who, interestingly, posted up at the sugarcane fields and copper plants um, because it wasn't really even a secret. They were there to protect economic interests. So this lasted for about four weeks, ended on the yeah. 22nd of June. Um, and during that time, somewhere between three and 6,000 black Cubans were killed. So they're like, come protect us. And the U.S. is like, okay, we we'll come exactly. protect the sugar, sugar plantations and the copper. Sure. Yes. What what yeah. do we buy from yeah. you? We will Our protect that. No it's it's safe. It's not going anywhere. Meanwhile, the rebellion is yes. going on. Lots of people are getting killed. But again, it was all about the money. I keep having the image of like Homer Simpson in front of a big pile of dirty sugar, <laughs> just crazed by the possession he has. Uh, that's that's what I imagine Cuba to be in these years. Just like a huge pile of sugar and some You're white maniac who's all twitchy in the front of it. 
You're, you're not <laughs> not wrong. I don't think from the reading that I did, it was. How did World War One go then? Yeah, Mark, do you wanna do you wanna talk us through how World War One influenced Cuba then? Yeah, so Cuba was you know uh, on the Allied side, kind of because they were uh, they were with uh, the U.S. They I think they did declare declare war. Um, they didn't contribute many troops. Uh, by the end of the war, they apparently had uh, twenty five thousand troops ready to go. But as we've seen with other uh, other countries with regards to World War One and Two, there was a lot of that. By the end of a war, everybody wants to get into the war. Once the kind of the way it's going is pretty clear, um, they did, however, send uh, and this is a bit of foreshadowing. They sent a one hundred person strong hospital unit with doctors and nurses who were at the front. Apparently, they interned Germans. They arguably kept the the U boats etc. out of the Caribbean. Uh, and they supplied lots and lots of sugar to the Allies. Uh, apparently, the French had lost uh, some of their Sweet. sugar supply. Sweet indeed. Sweet indeed. In the interwar years, you had a president called Gerardo Machado. Uh, he was president in 1925. Uh, he wanted to make Cuba the Switzerland of the Americas. Uh, and he started spending a lot of money trying to build infrastructure, build a big highway. Um, and his big thing coming in was... I'm only coming in for the one term. You can trust me. One term Jack. That's my nickname. Uh, and as soon as he came in, obviously, he tried to change the constitution to get him the second term, um, which he did. And then the sugar price collapsed. Uh, the Wall Street crash in 1929. He closed the university because he thought they were all a bunch of bastards and didn't love him. So he, he tried to get rid of them. There was a great assassination attempt on him. So to get to him, what they did was they killed the president of the Senate and assuming the president uh, uh, Machado would actually go to the funeral, they then hid a bomb in the crypt. So they killed the president of the Senate to lure him in Just to... and then tried to bomb him in a conveniently placed crypt. Wow. Uh, he did not go. He lived. In 1933, eventually the army said, look, you're a maniac. You need to get out. And he was like, oh, if the army says it, then I probably should do it. Uh, and he leaves, which leads to like a period uh, of just, uh, you know, multiple presidents, none of them lasting very long. At one point, there was this weird situation where you had five co-presidents. It was called the Pentarchy of Five. And if you're wondering why more countries don't do co-presidents, uh, this lasted exactly five days. And I think one of the guys ended up becoming president outright himself. <laughs> a day, a day each, and then they were like, "I'm shagged. This is this is tough, guys. <laughs> it's hard work." Um, I'd, I'd also like to point out that in, the Pentarchy of Five it, is really a, a bit of a redundant uh, qualification. It is it's incredibly redundant. An, an archy of five would have, three would have been more. No. <laughs> a guy, a guy who becomes kind of important around this time uh, is Fulgencio Batista. You're going to hear a lot more about him in the years to come. But he led, oh, a, yes. he led a small uprising called the uh, Uprising of the Sergeants uh, against Machado. Um, and he himself became a bit of a strong man in this period and was actually elected to be president outright in 1940. So he was the president during But he, he was elected, right? Um, uh, yeah, sure. The, I mean, the first elected time. as democratically as, you know... No, I think, Cuba, I think the Cuba first time manage. he was properly elected... Yeah, he, he was elected, but he also ran the military. So, you know, yeah, probably yeah. not that free and okay. fair, put it that way. Um, World War Two is kind of a weird time. Um, again, they are a super, you know, thumbs up Dudley Do-Right ally, ally with uh, the US. Um, 
They had their navy patrolling the, the Gulf and the Caribbean, keeping the U-boats out. Uh, an interesting element from this time is that Ernest Hemingway was living in Cuba in 1940. Um... And he decided he was going to wander around prodding his index finger into people's chests, <laughs> asking them if they were a German spy. Uh, and he got together some Spanish Civil War vets who were similarly hanging around Cuba, uh, 18 of them. And he called them the Crook Factory. And they just wandered around saying, hey, buddy, hey, buddy, you German? Uh, that was basically his, his strategy. And he, he also led when a, that he, got... he had a boat full of drunken, like spies who would go out on fishing expeditions and then they just shoot at u-boats like just be out in their boat shooting to sea well um, see not quite that was that was the idea because he's ernest hemingway he, he picked up he picked up the phone it was like hello u.s government ernest hemingway would like some machine guns and bazookas please <laughs> uh and he he did go out in this fishing boat uh, which is in the tradition of Q-boats, which are um, uh, basically boats that look like civilian ships but are actually military vessels. It's it's a thing mm. in the Navy, apparently. And he went out looking for U-boats. The idea being they'd go, hey, you're Ernest, Ernest Hemingway on a fishing boat. That's cool. And then he'd shoot them with a sh- machine gun and blow up the U-boat with his bazooka. That was his actual wow. plan. <laughs> and uh, so he went out in his fishing boat a lot and couldn't find any U-boats so him and the crook factory just got drunk and blew up fish with grenades uh, in what was referred to as drunken sport. Um, okay. So Ernest Hemingway, ladies and gentlemen. Um, <laughs> anyway, wow. Anyway, okay. So just one other detail. And this is, I mean, we're, we're laughing about Ernest Hemingway and his dumb, dumb stuff he did. Um, a slightly fishing. a slightly tragic uh, element of Cuba and the wars was they, along with the U.S., were approached by um, uh, I, oh it's the Saint Saint Louis that was it Saint Louis uh, affair is what it was called. It was this boat uh, that was chartered from Europe uh, filled with uh, Jewish refugees. It came from came from Europe. And they were turned away from, from Cuba. They were looking for, for asylum, obviously. And they were turned away from Cuba. Just to add, they were also turned away from New York City as well. Um, nobody really wanted them. And eventually, they, I think they dropped some people in, um, in Canada. And the UK took some people as well. I think they took about you know, two, 300 out of the 1,000 people that was on the boat. But tragically, some of them couldn't, uh, couldn't find a, a willing asylum. So... They ended up back in continental Europe, uh, in France, Belgium, Holland, etc., which were months later taken over by the Nazis. Uh, and there were some among those uh, who were actually, you know, captured by the Nazis and 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 executed, obviously. So, just an element of Cuba's history, but it it, it was also something that was an issue for the Americans as well. They also didn't give asylum during the forties and fifties. America just used Cuba as a as a holiday destination. Yeah, fair. we have a clip here from a documentary uh, featuring Walter Cronkite, who's gonna gonna give us an overview of post World War II, how the U.S. viewed Cuba. Caribbean <laughs> island of Cuba had been America's playground: beaches, booze, and casinos. Havana had it all. Cuba's land and industry were owned almost entirely by American corporations. 
we consider part of the United States practically, just a, a wonderful uh, little country over there that uh, was of no danger to anybody. As a matter of fact, was a rather important uh, economic asset to the United States. Yeah, so to, to Americans, it was just a paradise, but obviously they didn't really leave Havana very much. And the whole country of Cuba was a lot more complicated. After Batista's first presidency ended in, in 1944, there were two elections where members of the Partida Autenticos were elected, and they were sort of progressives. And they the, these two guys, Grau and Prio, were pretty boring presidents. Uh, there's one quote here from Charles Amaringer, uh, which says, they were not golden years by any means, but in these two elections, Cubans had the opportunity to express their desire for a rule of civil liberties, uh, primacy of Cuban culture, and achievement of economic independence. So they were sort of, they didn't fix all of the problems of racial inequality or economic, the need for economic reform, But they didn't make anything worse. But they were boring, unexciting presidents. Carlos Prio Socaras, the second president, uh, actually said of himself, he, he, I think, was living in, in Florida in exile. He said, They say that I was a terrible president of Cuba. That may be true, but I was the best president Cuba ever had. <laughs> I think... That was I his analysis. It's point out it's that, a pretty like, low bar. Yeah. That, that, like, that's, a, that's a good point, that the very fact that it is a notable point in history when the presidents weren't super fucked up, it like, tells you how rare that is in Cuba. Like everybody else was like a maniac or it was revolutions or wars or mm-hmm. God help us. Like, but uh, they had about a couple of years where nothing too mental happened. And that's, that's, and then, that's, no, that's bene. That is worth, worth noting down. That's notable. Yeah. 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 And, and, and yes, Prio's, the end of Prio's premiership was uh, eventful. The next election didn't go according to plan. Yeah, do you want to tell us a little bit about the reintroduction of our friend Batista, Aaron? Sure. So Batista was involved in the revolt of the sergeants. He was he was part of the coup. He helped install the government, the five-day presidency of the Pentarchy. Um, but his, his heritage, he's like 15 different things. He was Spanish-African... Indigenous oh, of course. Caribbean, he, he, and his father was part Chinese. Yeah, he was, he was everything. Race, he was the first important. non-white president of Cuba, which maybe wasn't a big deal. I don't would know. Would be cool if would be yeah. cool if what? If he wasn't evil. Yeah, that's that's true. It really kind of it makes makes it a harder road to hoe for everyone down the road. Um, but he was legally named Ruben Zaldivar. Ruben Zaldivar. I'm not entirely sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but. Um, his mother didn't want him to have that name, so she called him Batista. And it wasn't until he was running for president in 1940 that everyone discovered that Batista was this fake name. It wasn't actually a registered name, so he'd illegally change it when he was running for president. He sort of hung out, and in 1940, he was elected as legitimately as you can be. He was president until 1944, and then he sort of hung out and just waited for things to, to come back, for the tide to shift back his way. So while all, that, all of what Joe was just talking about was going on, he was just sort of, just sort of chilling. And then in 1952, he made his move again to run for president. Um, at the time, he was in charge of the government. Three guys in the race. He was a distant third, and he decided that the democratic process is for suckers and took the military, staged a coup in March of 1952, um, and took control. 
He canceled the elections. He said, I will be president. This rings a little bit true for me right now because this seems like something that might actually happen in my country. So I didn't really enjoy reading about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Oh, boy. It's a little bit too real. Um, Yes. He just kind of went, democracy, not going my way. No, we don't need it anyway. Right. He's a huge fan of it when he's in charge and running it and pulling the strings and getting the votes he needs. But everyone sort of saw the writing on the wall and went, we don't want this guy. And he went, actually, I think you do want this guy. I'm your guy now because I have the guns on my side. So that was that was great. Um, That was a successful coup. And he he was president for quite a while. What was his rule like? Uh, Decadent is the word that I kept seeing. This was the time when Cuba was America's playground. And given Cuba's history with Hmm. America and wanting to make nice with them and wanting to, you know, take advantage of that relationship, you saw all of this, you know, a lot of organized crime, a lot of mafia connections. Um, And Batista was sort of saying, that's cool. He was a big fan of gambling. He was a big fan of kickbacks for companies that moved their casinos into Cuba. He was a big fan of brothels and drugs and, uh, again, the mob. They found out of U.S. too, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Americans were coming over and, and holidaying in Cuba and bringing all their money and bringing all their... And the, and the mafia were providing the services that these two responded. Yes. It was a very profitable relationship. Questionable. Not a whole lot of scruples. I, I read something about Batista. Like, I guess his first presidency, it was during, during World War II, but I think he kind of falls into that boring president camp that we were talking about. Yes. But... Mm-hmm. It didn't really do much for him personally. So it looked like when he came when he came back later and and had more power, he was way more uh, focused on on stealing as much money as possible, and uh, also elevating his his social interactions with the the great and the good of Cuban society. Mm. That he felt he never he never really managed to break it into the the cool kids club in his first time <laughs> out. So it was like. I'm going to be really cool. I'm going to take all the money. And like, he was just really focused on that in his second run. Sure. Uh, and something anyway. interesting is, is that it, when he got elected, he was supported by the Communist Party. But yes. after the coup, he became very anti-communist and started cracking down on any kind of groups that had any kind of designs on changing society. Because now right. it was his. It was Yeah, it was um, his society. It was working for him. There's an interesting quote from Kennedy, uh, President Kennedy, uh, later in 1963, but essentially admitting that Batista was a problem. He said, uh, I believe there's no country in the world, including any and all of the countries under colonial domination, where economic colonization, humiliation and exploitation were worse than in Cuba, in part owing to my country's policies during the Batista regime. So he was really owning up to the inevitability of what is to come. Uh, and in some mm-hmm. ways agreeing with, uh, what was it? Batista was the incarnation of a number of, the, of sins on the part of the United States. So strong, strong words to uh, judge your own country's involvement with. with. It was. All right. I think that's where we're going to wrap today's episode. Uh, Join us next time where we get into a guy called Fidel Castro and the Cuban Revolution. If you have any questions, feedback, comments, just be sure to uh, email us at 80dayspodcast at gmail.com. You can contact us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And be sure to leave us a review on iTunes or share this podcast uh, with a friend. And as always, thank you very much for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. Bye-bye. Adios.